The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, one of the stories that I've been hearing more and more about over the last year or so is, you know, as China turns more inward, if you will, and they continue to deal with COVID zero, however they're going to proceed from here, maybe one of the best growth emerging markets out there is India. Uh, and that's kind of what I've been hearing more and more. That's a real opportunity. It's always been a growth story, but maybe even a little bit better here. Jotsna Krishnan joins us, uh, managing partner at Elevar Equity, um, joins us from India. Jotsna, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get a sense of what you folks at Elevar Equity are doing. How are you approaching India these days? Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, it's music to my ears on the recognition for India as a market. Uh, and it's really emerging these days. Uh, Elva has a unique uh, personality type, if I may call it so. We're a crossbreed between venture capital and private equity. Uh, we typically form a highly concentrated portfolio by venture standards. We have very low loss ratios. And yet, we go in right at the beginning, at early stages, very often being the first institutional capital. And part of the reason is that we have a very strong thesis around the end market as to what the customers are willing to buy. Um, in the sense that the product market fit is known to us before we make an investment, even at that early stage. So call us PE, call us VC, whichever way. So uh, where do you see the most opportunity for growth in India? I mean, is it um, in, in manufacturing products? For export, or is there a domestic opportunity there? What what's front and center? So our thesis is is fairly unique in the sense we're not sectoral in the how we think about it, but we are customer centric, which means we underwrite the wallet of an end ma massive market population, which is maybe about half a billion people. Um, these are people who are aspiring for quality and growth and have not yet been addressed by large scale corporate entities. Uh, what is fascinated about this customer segment is that the nonlinear growth potential comes from intergenerational growth ambitions. In a sense, previous generations in these markets have probably figured out survival, but the current generation is aspirational for a better quality life. They're focused on quality. They want better lives for themselves and their children. And it triggers a very interesting twin flywheel effect in the sense that businesses start growing because their customers start growing. And that's fascinating to watch. So we, we see very clear and fascinating trends across sectors because of this customer dynamic. So give us, uh, Justin, maybe some an examples of some of types of deals that you've invested in. You know, give us a sense of kind of how you think about your market. Yeah, so if you, if you think about the foundation that was laid by, let's say, microfinance in these markets, you see this customer now getting aspirational in terms of the quality of financial services product. They're ready for more sophisticated products based on business loans, uh, based on underwriting the robustness of cash flows, so working capital needs, uh, asset-backed lending, 
all of those are emerging trends within financial services for a market that banks did not address all these years. Uh, there are two, three other trends which I find fascinating. For example, the investment mindset in this market. They're looking to upgrade the quality of life and are often willing to pay interesting sums of amount to see that shift. So they're willing to invest in small businesses that are launched at their end. So you can work with them on a lot of these opportunities. And small business services, for example, those that take Shopify down another segment to an even smaller business would be fascinating themes you're looking at. Um, similarly, you look at uh, the affinity to core solutions as against just products or transactions. And just to take an example there, if you think about coding classes, that's still a single yep. product. But if you look at in the entire K-12 education that gives the child better chances of employability, that's a core solution, right? Think about farmer information services, that's a transactional service. But you think about market linkages and working capital solutions bundled together, that's a core solution. Teleconsultation, telemedicine is, is transactional, but a full stack primary healthcare solution is a core solution. And the minute you see this market gravitating towards core solutions, you know that you have them for the long run. Your cost of acquisition is lower. The customers tend to grow their business with you and you end up having a loyal, growing, massive customer base. Can you tell us about, just give us a sense of kind of how India fared through the pandemic? Where are you now? How did that maybe impact your business and some of the clients you, you deal with? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. To be honest, the first couple of months of the pandemic, we were like, God knows how this segment is going to come out because the external perception at some level is that it's a vulnerable segment. However, our thesis, of course, over the last 15 years of investing has been that there's a lot of resilience. And in a way, I'm kind of happy the last two, three years panned out because everybody's now seen that this market is super resilient. The companies that were lending did have to provide some moratorium initially, but that happened across the board globally. But what we saw interestingly was that the end market was very nimble in terms of adjusting. In fact, small businesses in India did not really necessarily get wait for any major subsidies or, or support. They tend to innovate and, and transition into business models very, very quickly in emerging markets. In fact, we have saw this both across India and Latin America, and they came out beautifully at the end of it. So that nimbleness makes them very resilient. Likewise, for education, we saw a massive shift towards digital solutions, both in healthcare and education, and that adoption definitely did speed up through the pandemic. But again, extremely smart purchasing decisions made by this market in a way that they managed cash flows well through the pandemic and switched back into growth and investment more the minute they could come out of it. In some sense, I, I see this market as far more resilient than some of the larger or, or higher income customer segments that do business. I mean, it's just been phenomenal watching the resilience grow. The, the, the one piece is that I think the world of capital probably took a little longer to recognize this resilience. So some of these businesses did take longer to raise funds, uh, but it's great to see that, that the core DNA of these companies is such that they weren't really as subject to the liquidity ebbs and flows. Uh, they were building core, core profitable businesses um, it's it's perfectly fine for some of our companies to raise right. money a year later than what was planned, and they still managed to generate cash flows through customer revenues, and that's been great. All right, great stuff. Really appreciate getting your perspective there, Jatsana Krishnan, uh, managing partner Elevar Equity. They are based in India, 
uh, investing in India. Ira Jersey covers all the rate stuff uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's in studio here, but as we all know, he is a soccer uh, guru here in the U.S. And Jonathan Tice in studio. He's usually based in London. He covers all the European banks for us, but he's here in studio. And we were just lamenting the England side and lost to France. But let's start it off. And by the way, we should say we do have a deep dive into soccer slash football later on in the program. We do. Yeah, because we have Darren Van Tassel. Oh, that's right. And Natre Van Tassel, the owners of the South Georgia Tormenta FC. And maybe... Ira can maybe... Maybe Ira can come back come for back. that. We'll see. I mean, and he's in the office. I mean, that's in and of itself is a wonderful I, thing. Yeah, it's All crazy. Right, Ira, it's only the second time I've ever seen him in real life. And I've been working here for 23 years. I know. It's yeah. this whole thing. I don't get it. But that's what the kids are doing these days. All right, Ira, your Federal Reserve meeting Wednesday. What are we going to hear? What are you looking for? Yeah, so, so uh, it's going to be a 50 basis point hike. I think the reaction function and what... Powell says during the uh, post-meeting press conference is going to be hyper important because will they, if they see uh, a reasonably high inflation print and and inflation doesn't come down as quickly as they want in January, will they then go 50 basis points again in February? And I think that that's uh, that's currently the question that is is in the minds of a lot of market participants. And and we're priced 50-50 basically right now for that eventuality. So um, we do get new dots. We do get a new summary of economic projections. You know, where does, where do Fed members see inflation going next year that's going to be another big focus right at two o'clock when we get the uh, when we get so, the so right now we're at four percent is the upper bound right yep. they're going to bring it to 450 on wednesday and then the next meeting is february 1st. february february 1st and it's likely i know that the pricing is split but isn't the uh, the mood kind of an expectation of another 50 basis point hike while they can get it in? Yeah, I, I think so. And and I, we do think that they're going to probably go to five and a quarter in the upper bound. So, you know, even though they're... That's your terminal rate expectation. Correct. So after February, the next meeting will be only 25 basis points. And March 15th, yeah. And then and then they're going to be completely the data The Ides dependent. of March. See, see at, yep. at, at some point, at some point, they were going to always have to downshift because they, they want to kind of tweak where that terminal rate is is and basically calibrate their their upper bound, right? So could they go to a five and a quarter, for example? Yes, that's where we think they're going. Could they go to five and a half in May if inflation still is pretty high? Yes, but that gives them more optionality to hike more if they're at 25 basis point increments instead of 50. All right, Jonathan Tice, uh, we've got you in studio here, a rare event, almost as rare as having uh, Ira here. Uh, well, but in Jonathan's defense, that's because he lives in England. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, I got it. Yeah, John Tice is one of the top banks analysts in the city of London, been doing it for decades. So we got interest rates rising, Jonathan. What does that mean for the European banks that you follow? Hi. Um, well, we've already seen an awful lot of the upgrades, net interest income upgrades, margin upgrades. Take Lloyd's, for example. It's going to make an extra $2 billion top line next year purely because the bank has ah, raised okay. rates. But I think um, if you think about Europe, in the U.S., it's quite clear that the Fed's been aggressive. If you're the ECB, you don't have a straightforward decision to make because you've still got to think Italy. We all remember 2012, 2013, sovereign crisis, all of that. So while a lot of commentators would think in Europe they're behind the curve, you do have to understand that we have a very big Italian bank system that is still not that strong. Still? Well, I mean, Monty Passi's, they yeah. just had another capital raise okay. after sort of 20 years of troubles. Um, and yes, the spreads have come back between Italy and Germany, but the ECB is very, very aware that yes, we've got inflation, but we do not want to kickstart some form of a... Um, sovereign fragmentation, which is what kicked off in 2012. Well, uh, you know, if 
the healthy banks are making more and more money with higher rates. Are they going to be able to do a little M and A and maybe take out a Monopasky? I mean, they probably nobody wants that bank, but. Um, are we going to see cross finally see cross border M and A that the CEOs back you know over the past few years have said no we can't do it because of zero interest rate policy and because um, the um, EU rules aren't yet finished in that regard. The, the rules are a very big part of it. Um, if you look at BNP, they're selling the US business. They've got seven billion to reinvest next year, but even they have said we're not going to do a big deal. We don't need to do a big deal. So we're two or three years away from a big cross border deal still because you've got liquidity concerns. It's not straightforward, and capital, um, capital is strong, but we're now you're heading into a recession, and we know that bad debts are going back up. So again, you normally buy a smaller bank. How can you price a smaller bank when you're not quite sure what the environment looks like? How can? What are the banks saying, the European banks, Jonathan? What are they saying about a recession in Europe? I mean, plus you've got the added issue of the war in Ukraine. So what are the big European banks saying about the next 12 months? Actually, very sanguine. I mean, we, we saw them all over-provisioned for COVID, so most of the banks have still got a pretty decent cushion that they're running down, a couple haven't. Um, and because of all of the sort of, it's four and a half trillion of excess liquidity, you've got retail deposits, you've got corporate deposits, the starting position for the, the man on the street is a lot better than it was. So they're still pretty sanguine and they've got a lot of room to play with. Ira, I think your Federal Reserve should pause. I think they've been raising rates like crazy. Okay, Jonathan's European banks are benefiting, the US banks are benefiting. But, you know, we're gonna get a CPI print tomorrow that's showing that, yeah, not only is inflation peaked, but it's coming down consistently. Why don't they pause? I might go to- But not take, considerably. I might consistently, take the train down Consistently, but not considerably, right? The, the problem is we're just not seeing inflation reduced at the speed we thought it would be. Yeah, so let's say it comes to where the market's pricing at around 7.2%. I think the consensus on the, the, the Bloomberg terminal is telling me 7.3% year-on-year CPI. Um, so it's that's still relatively high. But but to your point, Paul, you know the the month-on-month prints are much much lower than they were, right? So a lot of this is base effects and the fact that we had very high inflation early in the year. Um, because I, at this point, the Fed promised that they were going higher, right, going to 5%. Uh, Powell even said, you know, even when he was dovish a couple of weeks ago at the Brookings Institution, he he said, you know, we're going to be higher than the last um, summary of economic projections was. So, which was four and uh, you know four sixty five basically. So, if they're going to be higher than that, they want to deliver on that promise. And and you know, the, the the Fed doesn't want to under deliver, particularly when inflation is such a problem and such a high priority globally. And and if U.S. inflation comes down, that probably will feed into other markets. That'll feed into your Europe, that'll feed into the UK, that'll feed into Japan. Um, so, you know, we do want to get um, kind of demand and, and um, supply balance back into uh, back into some semblance of normalcy. And, and the only way to do that really is to slow US demand. The, the, the problem, I think, with US inflation in particular is that it's a lot of it's in the service sector, which isn't directly impacted as much by, um, by interest rates because you don't, you know, you don't buy, you don't go into McDonald's and buy a Big Mac on credit usually. Well, and even if it is, um, isn't the lag like three to five quarters that, policy that, lag? I mean, it was right. funny to hear you say they want to calibrate something. I mean, they're working with a sledgehammer. Um, so this is not the kind of delicate uh, scalpel work that um, you we, you would hope that monetary policy is. Yeah, so, so generally speaking, monetary policy takes between six and 18 months to flow through. So we're only starting to see the effects right now. 
All right, great stuff. Uh, Ira Jersey, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Rate Analyst uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And a rare treat, Jonathan Tice. He covers European banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he's based in London. So if you're ever in London, go look up Jonathan Tice. He'll buy you a pint. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Megan Horneman, Chief Investment Officer at Verdant's Capital, joins us here. Megan, I'm going to just, you know, I've been telling Matt, uh, 2022, I'm done with. It's, it's so over. I'm looking at 2023. What's your outlook? What are you telling your clients? What are you penning in your year ahead kind of letter? Well, I think that we've seen a lot of the um, equity damage and, and even the fixed income damage um, in 2022, but we're just starting to see the economic damage from whether it's the um, you know slowdown in economic growth or the, the tightening of the Fed policy. We're just starting to see that. So unfortunately, going into next year, uh, there's going to be a lot of of the same when it comes to the economic situation. The economy is going to be weaker. Um, it's going to be quite volatile. We think the consumer is going to be um, the one thing that's going to give in 2023. They've been very resilient this year as far as spending, and we'll get retail sales tomorrow as well. But I don't think it's sustainable when you look at the level of spending and then you look at how they're spending. And that is basically turning to credit cards, which are growing at a double-digit pace over an annual basis. Um, are you worried about the, uh, or are you watching the credit card legislation? I can't remember the name of the bill, um, but it's like the credit card competition bill or something that's apparently going to open up another pay rail and give retailers more of a choice. Um, no, I'm not following that so much as far as the, the what people are doing. I mean, taking out debt in any respect in a slowing economic economy is, is not something that consumers want to do. While balance sheets are relatively healthy, we're still seeing savings and savings rates pretty much dwindle down. So um, I think turning to credit is is not the right thing. At ah, this okay. I, I, sorry, sorry I, I misunderstood. I thought you were saying that you like the credit card companies here. Oh, no, no, no. No, sorry. for sure. If, if, no, if no. the consumer is taking is putting more and more money, uh, more and more purchases on plastic, that's a problem. Um, yeah. And that's the kind of the kind of sign that we've been looking for. What's your expectation for a recession in 23? Or some people have been saying maybe it won't come till early 24. 
No, I, th- I think it's highly likely in, in 2023. And I actually would lean more towards the, the first half of 2023 because we've had such a, um, like I said, a resilient year from the consumer spending standpoint in 2022. I think after the holidays, after the spending's been done for this year, that people will sit back, reassess, um, they're going to see the credit cards, not only their credit card bills, the actual number on the credit card bill, but don't forget that credit card rates are rising just along with the rest of interest rates. So credit card interest rates right now are very high, and I think this is just going to be challenging for consumers. So I think from a um, spending standpoint, that's going to pull back. You have that at the same time where you have manufacturing that's now in contraction territory. Um, you have housing that continues to, to be challenged by higher interest rates and high costs. These three things could be um, could weigh on the economic uh, scenario in the first half of next year. So, Megan, you know, we, we, it seems like a lot of economists are saying we might have a you know a tough or first half, but then maybe better second half. As you think about kind of where you want to position your portfolio, are you guys kind of constructive on the markets here or are you kind of wait and see a little bit as we get into next year? So we're long-term investors, so we're always constructive on the market. Right. But, um, you know, right now for the, for the near term, what we're trying to do is, is raise a little bit of cash going into the year, the end of the year, especially since we've had such a tremendous rebound um, since that October 12th low. So and take last week out of the equation, we still have had a, a pretty decent upside there. So there's some areas that we may want to just overall reduce some risk, increase that dry powder, get a little bit more cash, because I do believe that in the first half of next year, there's going to be a lot more opportunities to put more money into the equity markets for the long run. Tax loss harvesting is mm-hmm. a phrase we've been yes. hearing a lot. Is that what you're talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah. So it's not just only tax loss harvesting, because remember, tax loss harvesting is um, you know, you, you're, you're taking the tax loss and maybe implementing something as a um, like an ETF or something that so you're staying participated. But this is an overall tactical move in the market where you want to reduce your overall risk in the portfolio. So take losses where you can, but also then um, look at maybe just reducing some of those areas of the market that have rallied so much um, here in the past six weeks. Megan, you know, as a long-term investor, where does technology fit into your portfolio? I was just going to ask about the FANG stocks. See? Oh, yeah. Great minds think alike. I'll front-run you a little bit. But again, the FANG stocks have been so good to Matt and me and everybody else over the last dozen years or so. As we think about those types of names, will they continue to be leaders in this market, or, or is their time as a, as a market leader passed? So, so that was like a, a three-part question there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is, um, what do we think of technology in the long run? And then, and then you had mentioned Fangs, and then um, have they lost their leadership? And technology over the long run is, is a great investment. Um, good quality technology. The Fangs. Um, the reason why they got that that you know the Fang name to them is because um, they had their valuations had run up so far so fast. Nobody had anticipated that any other company in the S and P 500, including technology could actually produce the same types of earnings um, growth that those companies could. I think that those days are over. Um, you're, people are not going to pay outsized valuations for companies just in the hopes for that future growth. And the main reason behind that is that the interest rate environment is completely changing going forward. Um, I think that there is room for good quality 
um, technology, even good quality growth. But I think that that's going to be a second half of the year next door, um, second half of the year story um, for next year, because I think there still is room from the valuation correction that we need to see. You're still looking at earnings that probably are, are slightly um, unrealistic at this point for some of these names. So we want to see that come down. Then you'll get a bit more of a, a better entry point into these areas. What are you looking for in terms of earnings across the S&P? I mean, broader uh, earnings and valuations next year. So next year, the the, um, the multiples the big unknown. Um, I do think that you're going to see some further PE multiple compression in the S&P 500, but it's primarily going to be led by technology. Um, those FANG names, as we've mentioned, mm-hmm. those are the ones where we're going to see PE contraction, and they make up the majority of the S&P 500. Um, I think earnings growth has um, it does need to be revised lower. I still think we can get somewhere around you know, in the the mid single digits of an earnings growth situation, but um, we do need to see earnings come down. And and remember, this market is is almost very segmented right now. You have pockets of the market that have really good earnings potential next year, but then you have some areas of the market that I think are going to are going to struggle next year as well. So you have to be very selective, um, active management from not only your asset allocation exposure, but also um, even looking from the um, your investment pers- proposal, your investment exposure as far as managers. Make sure that so, you know, selectivity is very important going into next year. All right, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Good stuff there. We really appreciate it. Megan Horneman, uh, she's a chief uh, investment officer at Verdance Capital Management, giving us her thoughts on these markets. I want to talk technology. I want to talk technology M&A. Toma Bravo's got a deal out there. They're buying some software company. And we'll get to that. But Microsoft buying 4% of the London Stock Exchange, I don't know what's going on with that one. So fortunately, we got a software expert with us, Steve Koenig. He's managing director at SMBC, Nico Securities America. Uh, he joins us over the phone. Hey, Steve, can you tell me what Microsoft is doing buying you know, a small piece of the London Stock Exchange? I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, gentlemen. Great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it is. Um, it, it's it's just you know, it's an indicator. It's a symptom of the fact that there is a lot of runway left for businesses in many industries. In this case, financial services to transform the way they the way they make decisions, the way they use data, and the way they operate in the cloud. And Microsoft, being the number two cloud player with Azure. Is a is a real driver and and benefits from that migration to the cloud, and um, you know there are a lot of there are a lot of ways to do it. In this case, this is this is really a vertical specific. It's an industry specific initiative um, that Microsoft is undertaking, uh, which 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 basically is going to allow them to exploit the um, the opportunity to provide financial data to you know many of uh, Thomson Reuters customers. And, uh, and in doing so, they, um, in signing this deal, they can help to transform Thomson Reuters on offerings to better integrate them with Excel, to better integrate with them team, with Teams, Microsoft Teams, it's collaboration software, and to really make the Thomson Reuters products work better. You know, honestly, I've used Thomson Reuters and I've used Bloomberg and some of the Thomson Reuters software could use a company like Microsoft to help them out, you know, just <laughs> speaking very frankly, okay? <laughs> got it. All right, Matt, we got another extremely overeducated guest here. Uh, our friend here, Steve, has got his BS with distinction in mathematics from Stanford. Boring. Master's in engineering <laughs> from Stanford. 
and then an MBA from Harvard. I, I'm not sure I'm talking to this guy at a cocktail party, but I think he knows what he's talking about when it comes to, to software. Paul is a little bit intimidated, Steve, uh, when it comes to math, statistics, and he's not, he's not a STEM guy. Let's put right, it like that's that. that um, hey, my job is to make it simple, so happy to happy to do that. Good. So, well, and that's that's an interesting explanation of the Microsoft deal, and I get that. And if you look at it a little more deeply, um, they're I can't tell if they're paying. Uh, the LME or if the LME is paying them, like where's the balance? Because um, they're getting a lot of business in return, right? Yeah, yeah. My read of the terms in the deal is that they're they're buying a, a, a billion dollar equity stake, and um, and there will be proceeds out of that um, that Thomson Reuters and NLC will use to expand uh, the business. You know, the data analysis business and Thomson's Reuters tools. Um, in return, Microsoft gets a um, minimum commitment it's a 10-year deal so they get a minimum commitment of 2.8 billion in in guaranteed revenue from lse um for using azure microsoft cloud service now now a lot of that revenue was going to happen anyway if not all of it it's just a guarantee but in addition microsoft expects to generate uh another you know i uh, i would calculate 2.2 billion because they they calculate 5 billion in total of uh, that they're going to get in revenue from this deal over 10 years and and that additional revenue they're going to get, I think a lot of that is, is probably going to come from Thomson's Reuters customers is what Microsoft is hoping, that they'll help build better tools for Thomson Reuters and that those tools can be sold to the you know 10,000 customers that Thomson Reuters have. If they call that business for affinity, does that, does yep. that data analysis and tools business. All right, and we should note that uh, Bloomberg LP competes with uh, Thomson Reuters. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> let's, let's, let's we're not worried. We invented the internet. <laughs> yeah, okay? we invented. Yeah. Hey, all right. Yeah. So, you, you so, guys and Al Gore, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> so Steve, we've got another M and A trade in your space here. A stock that you cover, Coupa, uh, going to be acquired by Toma Bravo. Is that I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, yeah. Toma Bravo. Okay, that's right. What? Since when does private equity buy software companies? What's going on mm -hmm. there? Yeah. Well. Um, Private equity buys a lot of software companies. Uh, that's that's a trend that's been going on for a very long time, and um, you know the the um, I think in the, in the, really in the last twelve months there there have been at least ten pretty large transactions of uh, PE firms buying software. Um, the reason PE firms like software is that the revenues don't trip very easily. They don't go away. You know, once a company buys either package software or infrastructure software and integrates it into their business, you know, they, they become pretty dependent on that software. And maybe over time they might rip and replace it, but more generally they just add around it. And so, you know, when you buy a software company, you're buying a, a revenue stream with a very long tail. Uh, and the other driver here is that, you know, some of these software businesses have not, they have not learned how to be profitable yet. Um, but they're very capable of being profitable because the revenue doesn't go away because there's low churn. And so the private equity firms are, are experts in being able to um, create more disciplined cost control at these companies and generate a lot right. more cash when these companies go private. And and that's what's happening here. You know, Coupa has pretty good cash flow, but, um, you know, they've got tough competition in the markets with SAP. Uh, they, you know, we see them as the best of breed leader in, in this business spend management. Um, but I think the private equity firm sees, you know, they see an opportunity to create shareholder value here, especially with the stock having really been hit in the yep. tech downturn this year. You know, I think they see an opportunity for, you know, to add value and, you know, to ultimately take take Coupa either public again or have them acquired by a, strate a software strategic 
right. you know, vendor uh, at a higher price. All right. Good stuff, Steve. Good having you on. Steve Koenig, uh, really smart dude on this whole software tech space. And we need those kinds of voices here. SMBC, Nico Security to cover software there. We appreciate getting a few minutes of his time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. We're going to go to Wes Kosova now. He's a host of Bloomberg's Big Take podcast. A Big Take are some of the best reported uh, stories coming out of Bloomberg News. And so, therefore, you give them a podcast because that's what the kids are doing today, Matt. They're doing the podcast things. It's actually big business. Advertisers like it. Wes, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you guys have on your Big Take podcast today? Today we're telling the story, actually, our second installment on TikTok, you know, the coolest place on the Internet. Uh, investigative reporter Olivia Carbell did a story for uh, uh, Bloomberg a, a couple weeks ago about kids who were accidentally killing themselves trying to copy these dangerous challenges that appear in some of the videos on TikTok, like the blackout challenge where people try to, you know, black themselves out and get that rush when they uh, wake back up. Well, kids, unfortunately, who are really young are doing it, and, and several of them have died. In her second story, which we feature on the podcast today, she's talking about something a little bit different but and a little bit harder to, to, to track, which is what she calls teen TikTok, and that's Kids who have these accounts are teenagers, um, and sometimes they're a little bit provocative on uh, their accounts. A lot of them are teenage girls. They're wearing kind of uh, skimpy outfits. They're dancing provocatively. The lyrics of the songs are very suggestive. And there's this big tension between kids doing things uh, on the platform, whether that platform should allow it on, and a lot of parents and other people saying that it's inappropriate, it's influencing their kids, and they want yeah. it off the platform. Yeah, I mean, it sounds more like a parent's problem than a platform problem to me. Why would, Welcome to the why would parents allow their kids to go on dude, this dude, Chinese social media raised, site? You haven't raised teenagers. It is, it is the number one issue. It's funny, we have police officers would come into school about drugs and alcohol. That's not the issue anymore. I mean, that is something that parents, they kind of have a hold on. The problem with the internet is parents, by and large, don't know what they don't know. It is brutally difficult to do it. There's software out there. 
But having raised four teenagers, I can tell you, well, it let is me, almost Well, let me ask impossible. you this, Wes. How, I mean, even if we decide as an, as Americans that, some, that TikTok should be uh, regulated differently, how much control over that do we have since it's a Chinese company? Well, you know, it's not so much that it's a Chinese company when it comes to the control as it is um, this idea of how do you police a platform that has tens of billions of videos every year. Olivia writes that in the first half of the year, TikTok removed, I believe it was something like uh, 200 million videos from the site that were deemed to be inappropriate. But in that time, there were 20 billion videos that were downloaded. And you make a good point about the parents. You, You know, it used to be you'd have a computer on the desktop and you could have a whitelist on the computer of sites where your kids could go or not go. Well, now it's on phones and they create accounts on different names. Their parents don't know about the accounts. In the podcast, uh, Olivia talks about this one girl whose name, her, her name on the platform is Jenny Papach. She's 16 years old and she's become one of the most popular and one of the most controversial people on the platform right. because of the way she dances. And she has 7 million followers. She yeah. has brand deals because she's so popular that people want to, you know, have her feature their club. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it is the Wild West in so many ways. Wes Kosova, he's the host of Bloomberg's The Big Take podcast, all those well-reported stories. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.